This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see Right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go, do you want me to go f***ing flash your lights? Take two. Film vs. Film. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Film vs. Film, the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtue, and how they stack up against each other. Which film will hold up, and which film will be left on the cutting room floor today, we look at two very different science fiction films as we compare what many consider to be the best time travel film of all time, the story of a teenage boy who travels back in time and does everything he can not to cuckold his own father, versus the Oscar-winning story of two aliens named Abbott and Costello who travel through space and time to teach humans a very important lesson in language. I'm filmmaker Craig Anderson, and I'm joined today by my two best friends from high school, a couple of boys who travelled from Cape Town to Western Sydney in the middle of the 1980s. First up, a man who fell whilst trying to hang a clock above his toilet, and when he came to, he could speak alien. <laughs> it's Herschel Isaacs. Jesus Christ, Craig. Morning. Um, here's the weird thing. I've, ever since I arrived, I was here a little bit before both of you. Mm. I've been feeling like what, it's in 7 Australia? PM. No, in the, in the foyer, oh, man, sorry. in the foyer of the lecture theatre. <laughs> um, I've been feeling like it's the evening because we always tape at night mm. and it's 11 o'clock in the morning. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. So to some extent, that fits into our time travel piece yeah. tonight. Wow. I feel like a time travel. You're also going to get some morning um, uh, voices, some much deeper, richer voices compared to normal. <laughs> I feel like a Barry White voice. I'm normally exhausted when we record these podcasts <laughs> yeah. at the night time because I'm like coming maybe from a two hour lecture, which drains you, and then you suddenly got to go into a podcast mm. and you got to get that energy back up. Also joining us is Herschel's twin brother and the associate butthead of film at the <laughs> University of <laughs> Sydney, Bruce Isaacs. I- you know what I look forward to each week is yeah. how more insane your introductions are going to become <laughs> and, and how we'll be represented each week. But what does that say about Back to the Future? Mm. Biff, butthead. Butthead, Biff oh. Tannen. All right. Now, we grew up in the sprawling suburbs of Western Sydney and spent all our free time watching movies and TV shows. And today, I'd like to discuss one of the memories that was iconic in our childhood. It's... Time to return to Cabot Cove and celebrate the crime-solving prowess of Miss Jessica Fletcher, as portrayed by Angela Lansbury in the TV show Murder, She Wrote. You know what I love about this, Craig? And for our listeners at home, Bruce and I don't know what Craig's coming up with Mm. during the downtime before we tape. So when he says something, we're kind of waiting to see what it is. Last couple of ones, that's been interesting conversations, but this one, Craig, (laughs) you've hit this out of the park. (laughs) Crack. Murder, She Wrote is... It was it was Agatha Christie to us, yeah, and it was a more accessible Agatha Christie because we were too young to read the novels then. For, for people who don't know, it ran. It was a twelve-year running TV show yep. that was an hour long, um, and it featured a woman uh, played by Angela, Angela Lansbury, Lansbury who's amazing, and. It averaged 25 million per viewers Well, there was a time a, when it was the biggest show. Yeah, so right? Angela Lansbury was the highest paid person in the history of television for a, a, wow. a, an extended period of time. It amazing? was that successful. And, I mean, she started producing. She got her relatives into executive producing <laughs> roles. That's true. I think her son was producing. <laughs> That's so good. But, but 
um, we should also note that it's from the guys who created Columbo. Ah. So the same people made Murder, She Wrote, and this time... Not quite the level of complexity as no, Columbo so, stories, so but... They, <laughs> they aimed for a much... I mean, Columbo was popular, but Murder, She Wrote was a phenomenon, yeah, right? Yeah. And um, one of the things that I really like about it is I actually remember watching the pilot in Cape Town. Whoa. Like right on the cusp of when we left. So it came out in 1984. Right. So yeah. we left April 1986. Wow. So we're probably watching it on TV sometime in 85. Mm. So I actually associate that um, with the end time of, 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 South, of, my, of our South African lives. The other thing about it was, and I like the Colombo reference. Remember the pilot to Colombo? Yeah. Um, well not, not the original, original pilot, but the Murder by the Book. Yes, where you've got the, the, the two authors. Yeah, exactly, the two yeah. authors. So it was very literary. So you were writing a great story that would then be filmed, and so that, so it's TV based mm. on, or film well, that's, based on writing. I mean, yeah. this was called Murder, She Wrote, and she, the She's opening the author, title, she right? sits at the typewriter yes. and type, tap, 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 and it, had a, it was such a parody opening title sequence as well for yeah. comedy and stuff that music I actually tried to um, work out the music on guitar <laughs> and it's actually very it's quite a complex piece mm. um, but you know that was everywhere I mean li- literally for our listeners not knowing what Craig was going to say I actually said to Craig hey when are you going to make me that Murder She Wrote t-shirt that you've been <laughs> promising that's the stature that that show has yeah. for me and right? I don't know if you, if you remember but what they became incredibly good at was they would start to bring in tropes from other shows so do you remember the 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 show where jessica's on a bus and it's pouring rain and they end up at a diner because (laughs) the bus uh, you know i don't know the time and flat i don't know what it was but so there's a murder in the diner and somebody in the diner so that's your typical agatha christie framework well that's that's death in the clouds agatha christie which takes place on a plane that's traveling from um what is it i think paris to london same, you know, wow. the same scenario, right? So Murder, She Wrote was riffing on the classical story. And the truth is the only time Murder, She Wrote died was when the police procedural took over and you got the law and orders sort of, you But know, then they tried to go and, in that direction And, and the as forensics. Well. They moved Jessica into the city. Um, they, yeah. I don't what? know, did you watch the Murder, She Wrote movies? Um, yeah, that was South great. by South. South by Southeast, I think, is the name yeah. of one of the movies. Brilliant. Kind of fun. <laughs> I, mean, <that's laughs> I just love it. You said it going brilliant. <laughs> and, I mean, that's on the train. So <laughs> you got the train. Oh, you wow. got Terry Grant on the train in North yeah. Northwest. Heaps of fun. Heaps of fun. Yeah. But when they try to modernize, I think the, the show had run its course. Um, yeah. It Bruce ran had, until 1996. 1996. Mm. So 12-year like, run. So and that's pretty big. And it ended amidst great acrimony because Angela Lansbury was furious that the network oh. cut him. And her line was, but I, you know, what are you talking about? We gave you so much for so long, and you're going to cut us just because our ratings have dropped a bit? And they just, like, cut it just like and that. Wow. Speaking of, you know, a few acrimonious things that happened, I think, Bruce, you told me this, but the doc in mm. the show was furious because he <laughs> wanted a relationship yeah, to, with, to, Jessica with Jessica Fletcher ah. because her, she was a, she was a uh, widow. Mm-hmm. He was a widower. Why not hook them up? And he... He insisted that they write that into the show, and as a result, uh, we got knocked back. They said, "You're crazy." And then, um, <laughs> well, just, Angela Lansbury wanted Jessica Fletcher to be a single woman, like That's to so be cool. an yeah. autonomous woman, exactly, not to be like 
attached to Doc. And it never, it never would have worked. First of all, ridiculous. he wasn't, the the wasn't even interesting. A doddery character, wasn't he? He was, yeah. bit... he was the most annoying person. Yeah. I was hoping every episode someone would kill him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should say, I was a massive fan of Angela Lansbury yeah. um, always, but uh, I remember Bedknobs and Broomsticks, the yes. film. Then I saw her pop up in Manchurian, Manchurian Candidate. Man- she won the Oscar She won the Oscar for that. Won that Oscar. is one of the most amazing performances. This is a 1960s film. We're not talking about the remake. This is the 60s Frankenheimer yeah. film with Frank Sinatra yes. playing her son, and he was only two years. Yeah, no, hang on. Frank Sinatra's not older? a son. He's the the chosen oh, assassin. Oh, who's his son? The, the other dude. I can't remember. Oh, that's right. Because she's the villainess. She's the big villain. She's yeah. creepy. And Sterling Hayden, as a husband, is yeah. brilliant. Now he is on. I, I don't know. I don't have the dates exactly, but um, Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove, where yes. Sterling Hayden's incredible in that as well. Yes. So he's in a in a real role There's here. There's definitely a point of contact there with the sort of paranoia films. Mm. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was, do you guys remember Angela Lansbury in Gaslight? That oh, was yeah. her first oh, performance, That's right? such a good movie, That's her, yeah. That's the that first years. time she comes I, I on screen, remember. and she's bloody magnetic. Our listeners right. should look up Gaslight. It's Gaslight's literally it's where the term where comes, comes from. Yeah, yeah, And it's just a great... It's If you're into sort of suspense and especially melodrama of that era, like no one did it like Hollywood in that era of melodrama, mm. check out Gaslight. It's one of the best ones. Well, it's also a very part. Stephen King and New England yeah. town. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, it's set in Maine, so it's north, northeast United States. There's a lot of the Stephen King contained kind yep. of town. Cabot Cove is its own characters, its own kind of way of working. And Jessica Fletcher, she encounters a murder every week, which is <laughs> quite unusual. As a boy, I had the uh, board game, Murder, She Wrote board yeah. game, which was kind of a ripoff of Clue, Clue. or Cluedo, yeah. which is like, it just lays out and you just move Jessica around and you <laughs> walk into rooms and you can get him, <laughs> you know, stuff. But it was all set at Cabot Cove and it yeah. had a lot of the stuff from the TV show, yep. uh, houses and stuff. I want to mention that in its third season, it did a crossover episode with Magnum P.I. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> and we should say that Angela Lansbury in the 80s and 90s, she would have been over 60, maybe over 70. She oh, yeah. didn't, didn't she? Old. She only died, I reckon she she died, died a couple of years ago. She only died, yeah. uh, like, last year in November. I reckon she was around my, was 60 so when they, or late 50s, mm. about 60, when they did the pilot for Murder, She Wrote. All right, as always, today's episode will be full of spoilers uh, for the two films that we're discussing. And if other films pop up as we chat, we will try our best not to ruin them for you. Let's get into it. Take one. First up on today's show, it's Back to the Future from 1985. Filmmaker Robert Zemeckis and his writing collaborator Bob Gale had worked together on a couple of unsuccessful films, but it somehow attracted the attention and mentorship of executive producer Steven Spielberg. Together, they developed and pitched for five years before they finally got to make Back to the Future in 1985. The story begins in the year of 1985, where we meet Hill Valley high schooler Marty McFly. It's Hill Valley, isn't it? Hill Valley, yeah. Hill Valley. Uh, an outsider whose best friend is an aging inventor who has turned a DeLorean into a time machine. <laughs> Marty then accidentally travels back in time, accidentally disrupts his father and mother from meeting, and accidentally makes his mother fall in love with him. Marty then finds the younger version of his inventor friend and together they must put right all of the dilemmas before the one chance they have to send Marty back to the future. The movie is full of spectacle, nostalgia, action, comedy, special effects and at times subversive narratives regarding love, destiny and family relationships. Uh, It opened to positive reviews and took in $381 million in 1985 money around the world, uh, making it the biggest selling film of that year ahead of Rocky IV and Rambo II. 
Herschel, this is a movie we watched over and over again throughout our childhood. What's your take on Back to the Future? I don't even I don't actually know where to start because I love this movie so much and I've probably seen it 20 times. Mm-hmm. I've I've seen it in different ways. So as kids we all watched it and we all knew it very well. I I had to watch it for this obviously and then I was just going oh I had to like I know it so well yeah, so yeah. I you just can started speak fast I know it yeah, yeah. I couldn't yeah. Um for me it's kind of even been reinvigorated a bit since my son was born, he started. He watches a lot of movies with me, and then it's got a new life of its own where I see it through his eyes as well. Mm. Of all the movies that we've discussed on the show, I'm going to say for me this is the most perfect movie. So I know that's a really <laughs> look. That's a really it's big, big call. call it's sure. a very very big call. It's huge. So I want to say, do you guys remember when we well, were better kids, than Revenge of the Nerds? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when when we were green kids, yeah. you know what you do? <laughs> Wait, green, green book. <laughs> okay, when we were kids and. And like we did, if, if you love movies, you know how you get young people that they go around, they go to adults and they go, hey, what's your favorite movie of all time? You know, they don't go like, mm. what, what movie do you love? You go, what's your favorite movie of all time? Can you only give me one movie, right? As you get older, you realize, well, you can't really, you can't really have an answer to that because, yeah, you know, things harder. change, your life changes. Yeah. It's linked to particular time frames. And I'm going to talk a lot about nostalgia and things being linked to, to time frames. But if you were to say to me, what is my favorite movie of all time? And I had to give you an answer. Mm. Linked to all the things that's occurred in my life, the way I think of when I'm young, as we grew up, our friendship, my son loving it, those sorts of things. He's saying, what's my favorite movie of all time? It's Back to the Future. That's how big it is for me. The other thing I'd say, and this is a little bit off topic, but the other thing I'd say is probably the last time I watched it was you know prior to prepping for this and stuff like that, but the last time Lockie and I watched it just for fun, um, the Johnny Bigood scene came on. Still one of my favorite scenes in movies with um, him going crazy and he's so passionate in the rock and roll. And um, you know the bit at the end where he's kicking the speaker over and he pulls that crazy <laughs> face yeah. and then he hits a crazy note. And then Lockie, my son, picked up my guitar, put his foot on the table <laughs> and copied the Michael J. Fox. Yeah. I then took a photograph of that and that's a tattoo on my shoulder. That's wow. how much I love this movie. <laughs> it's Lockie's face on Michael J. Fox, basically out of Johnny Be Good. Yeah, it's a good tattoo. It's a really good tattoo. Oh, that's, I didn't even know you had a tattoo. Yeah, yeah. You show us. For, well, oh, for, um, for our folks at home, I'm just showing. Oh, that's so cool. That's cool. So what I guess I want to talk about is why do I love it so much? But when I say why do I love it so much, I, I saw an interview with Michael J. Fox maybe two years ago. Um, he had given an interview and he was at Comic-Con somewhere for a special appearance. And he said when people come up to him, it's not kind of like, well, oh, Back to the Future, I love this movie and that. They, they talk about it in terms of life-changing things. Mm. Like you tie it to it in, in your formative years. Mm-hmm. I think it's the ultimate movie about the importance of time. And I think that's where we're going to link together mm. through Arrival, which is a very different type of movie, different tone. But I think that's where these two cross over beautifully. And I do want to say completely different understandings yes. of how time works. Yes. Right? That's what makes this episode so interesting to me. And different mm. intentions behind yeah. it. It's also, I think, the importance of your particular time. It's about the importance of what you do with your time. Yeah. I really love what you're saying because what you're saying is the movie's not just a plot about, hey, his kid's got to go back to 1955, stop his parents you know, you know, from, from falling out or not meeting. The movie, in a sense, has got time woven into it. It's, throughout, it's, it's, it's in its bones, right? And the other thing I want to say was, in the mid-'80s, and in fact in the 80s generally, 
time was this fascinating thing. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the three of us share you that we like movies about time. Well, when did that Hawking's book, Stephen Hawking? The yeah, what was that? That was in the 80s, right? Yeah, in the 80s. So there was this obsession with going, I want to understand time mm. in the universe. Otherwise, nobody's going to green light this movie, which is ostensibly about, as you say, the doc builds a time machine out of a DeLorean. <laughs> and there are some pretty nifty and complex ideas about time in the film. Who's, who's going to make that? Yeah. Unless it's part of the popular consciousness. Right? And it's not just, I think the reason I went a step further than, oh, this is a time travel movie is because it's, it's such an... It's such a movie about the hero's journey as well. It's about your time. It's about troubles that you've got, the disconnections that you might feel, and how you're trying to fix that. You're trying to find the place where you belong. And so, for example, in the early scene where Michael J. Fox is, is supposed to meet the doc at midnight, right, in, mm. in, in Twin Pines Mall, and then when he wakes up, it's Huey Lewis in the news, one of the great soundtracks yep. of all time. Huey Lewis um, is singing um, Back in Time. Got to yep. get back in time, yeah, right? Brilliant. Um, so, I so mean, all of that. Could, the subtlety of that? <laughs> yeah. The, the sheer subtlety of such a gesture. <laughs> no, but when you look it's at like it again. It's like Lizzo singing over Barbie. Yeah. saying exactly what's happening. But when you yeah. look at it again, um, it, you don't, you're not sitting there going, wow, that's desperate. That's, that's yeah. forced. It's not. It's really, really yeah. beautiful. Um, I mean, you couldn't do it now because cinemas becomes a self-aware. Yeah. But back then, that was uber cool. But right? Okay, so the license plate on the DeLorean, out of time. Mm -hmm. All right, so I want, that concept of out of time, yeah. out of place, so out of location, time, out of time. dislocation, yeah. all of that sort of stuff is really important to Back to the Future. Yeah. So um, Imagine Doc rocking up at the DMV in America <laughs> going, I want to register a number plate. What? Out, out of time. time. What? <laughs> <Yeah>. Why? <laughs> what, about, so, what about when Lorraine talks about the enchantment under the sea dance? I love that shot where she, she gazes like into the distance, yeah. but she gazes into memory. She's gazing mm. through time yes. to what she was and back in then. in fact, the whole concept of enchantment under the sea is also about being encapsulated in a, a, a temporal moment, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Like you enter that dance hall, you are in a passage of time. Yeah, uh, that's you beautiful. exit. The you design of it to the, 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 yeah. the caustic blue lighting yes. that moves around the background just makes you yeah. feel like there, you're so yeah, much you, you're kind of swimming in yeah. time. Yeah. Right? The contrast between 85, 1955, but also in the messages that they've got. So, for example, you know when Marty arrives back in 1955, uh, it's called Cattle Queen of Montana movie playing Ronald Reagan, Barbara Stanley. Oh, isn't that mm -hmm. fantastic? But then when he's talking to them, they go, who's the president in 1985? He goes, Ronald Reagan. He goes, the actor? Yeah. Like, so it's playing with so many different yeah. things in time. I want to get back to that thing again where you had a time when you, were, when, when, you, when you felt you were at your best, when things were good. And then with Lorraine, mm -hmm. what was L Lorraine Baines who became Lorraine McFly. So that's Marty's mum. When she's talking about Enchantment Under the Sea, her daughter immediately goes, Oh, that was so dumb when you met dad um, at the fish under the sea dance. <laughs> so, you know, and, and what was important to them, and George now has mm. become like, a, like a loser. an awkward loser sort of guy. To but her, it's fundamental. To her, can it's I, I say it's such an interesting choice to go back to your parents. I know that mm. was what inspired the writer team to go, imagine hanging out with your parents when you were a teenager, yeah. right? But the fact that to go back and not change something from your life, like It's a Wonderful Life or, you know, a, a movie that you might go back and be able to alter your own journey, this is altering your very DNA, like yep. altering something. It's sort of like working on a much deeper level of the mind and yes. time. Look, but know? I think that would become fascinating in 
the way like pop culture started thinking about time. Mm. Like, hey, what if I went back and changed this? And then that would have ripple effects. And, you know, people had started talking about time paradoxes. But um, even though, like, you when know, did Terminator come out? Yeah, 84. I think. Okay, so we got Back to the Future 85. Mm. We got Terminator coming out, which, which is essentially based on a time paradox. In fact, yeah. I'm, I'm convinced James Cameron started there. What if we had this crazy paradox? You go back in time, or someone goes back in time and kills, um, you know, your mother. What what would that mean for you? So this is a fascinating. It's, it's, it's idea. fascinating because it's the question of what if, right? Yeah. But it also relies on like the determinism. Is that the correct determinism. word? Determinism, like the ancient Greek stuff, like yeah, this yeah, yeah. is Cause going to happen yeah. to you, and you can't change it. But what if you could change one yeah. small thing, and it still works in that world? Whereas when we get to arrival. All bets are off. off right? well, when you get to arrival, that's yeah. genuinely an attempt to deal with the complexity of time. Yeah. Mm. Back to the Future is never trying to solve the problem. So lone pines, small, twin pines, small, all of that sort of stuff. They're not going to remember. Oh, I, I just want to reference quickly, Mr. Watts, our maths teacher. Yeah. I vividly remember being in class, and and he's going, "Okay, well, you guys are coming up with some interesting paradoxes, but it goes deeper than that." Um, so <laughs> uh, just to so remind I everyone, say, Mr. Watts yeah. was our. Uh, <laughs> Uh, math yeah. teacher, and he was also interesting because he, Herschel and I went over his house. Did we tell you? This? Yeah, you no, know, it's great. Once no. every Tuesday, we play chess. Every Tuesday, and he because oh, Mr. Watts thing. was one of the best um, yeah. chess, chess players, players in Australia. In Australia. This is right. in our uh, high school out in Western Suburbs. Yeah. 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 So yeah. we'd go over his house school. and we'd just play chess and, and he'd be playing both of that us. That is such a strange thing for two kids from, you know. So weird, yeah. right? That's yeah. weird. Not, not, it sounds like a private school, pro, you know, yeah. fancy university. Well, Michelle and I were kind of like, into sort of chess. Yeah, yeah. And Mr. Watts, because he was really good. Um, but then tell the, tell the back, because we would have these conversations with him. Yeah. And you discovered that, hey, this dude's also yeah, a so, nerd. So he so just happens to be 40-something years old. Yeah. He's, he's right. across all of it, right? He loves Back to the Future. Mm. But then he goes, okay, what happens at Twin Pines Mall when he Hang sends... On, is this Mr. Watts? Yeah, this is Mr. Watts. Watts. So he goes, oh, this he is a blast Watts. from the past he right sends, now. What about when he sends Einstein one minute into the future? He goes, no, there's a problem with that. Because the Earth would have rotated mm -hmm. some degrees and the car would not have returned to where the mall was. And then he was sitting there going... Shut up, Watts. What are you talking about? <laughs> Just enjoy the movie, man. But he actually, no, shout out to Mr. Watts because he was awesome. He was an excellent like, He was a great maths teacher. But, I mean, you could say to Mr. Watts that space and time were calculated by the doc. You know, like he, yeah, that you was could, part I mean, of his calculations. Well, it'd be part of relativity in yeah. some way, right? So you, you would think that... <laughs> The the, time, the movement in time would be encompassed by but relativity. See, we, we're moving into the arrival yes, kind of analysis. Let's now. leave that for because right, i got future, a lot to say about arrival. Back to the Future is a whimsical narrative which is about, is Marty McFly going to succeed? It's done on a, like a time-sensitive type of mm. method that is up there with the best seasons of 24. You were like sitting on the edge of the seat, he's going to make it. 88 miles per hour, everything. Yeah, that, and the final sequence is one of the greatest sequences. I want to shout out to Crispin Glover and what he did for George McFly in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Do you remember going to the Enchantment, an Oscar, really. the Enchantment Under the Sea dance? Mm. Why would you? Why would Robert Zemeckis keep that shot in with George? He's standing in front of the punch, and he's just like, yeah, "I'm with yeah. man's like the like the the red room guy yeah, in Twin Peaks when, he's doing, when yeah. he's doing his little no, dance." Because that that that's great filmmaking. Because rather than explaining to me that this guy's awkward, show me that yeah. he's awkward. But wow, there's so much verve in and him. And that's the point. <laughs> right? That's, that's the point I'm moment. making. So who could have guessed? 
that and you can like our listeners are gonna be able to tell from us having this conversation how much we love this movie, but who could have guessed that George McFly would be every bit as interesting as Marty McFly yeah. in this movie? Who would have guessed that the young Lorraine mm -hmm. was going to be as good as she is? I mean, no one puts a foot wrong. And then finally, Christopher Lloyd's Doc Emmett Brown is for me, and especially his evolution, his arc of his character through one, two, and three, when in number three, he becomes the voice of reason, which mm. is unbelievable when you compare it to the, the opening when he slips on the toilet bowl and he knocks <laughs> his head, right? In number three, he matures into like the rational person. Yeah. In the, but who would have guessed that Christopher Lloyd could have gotten that out of that character? Yeah. So the characterization mm. is my one of my favorites. It's up there with anything that I love. So can I say, this is one thing we haven't touched on. You mentioned it before, which is nostalgia, yes. right? And it's a form of time. Like, I think of nostalgia as just another kind of experience of time, right? Mm -hmm. All of us, in some ways, are nostalgic about things. Back to the Future is one of the most sophisticated nostalgia works. And in fact, um, uh, a very famous um, sort of neo-Marxist theorist coined this term the nostalgia mode to describe 1980s American Hollywood cinema. Mm -hmm. And Back to the Future is among you know, the great nostalgia works. So I love the idea of nostalgia as Marty goes to 1955, and we don't experience you know, 1955 as American realism. We experience it as a kind of fantasy. So he comes out and is playing Mr. Sandman, mm. and we see you know the car pulls up and all these guys come out and start wiping the windows. So it's a he kind doesn't go of back to like the last picture show, for instance. Exactly. So okay, so that you just said it perfectly. On the one end, you got the last picture show. You got Bogdanovich doing well. This was the Dust Bowl mm. post de depression. This is right? reality. This, this is, is what, yeah. this is the brutality of life. Marty's not going there. Marty's going to the glorious 1950s. And all I wanted yeah. to say was. I once did a, if anyone's interested, I did a video essay on Back to the Future, which you can get on the conversation. But essentially, which the is a website. The it's a website. Yeah, I would recommend, the, I've watched that. It's an amazing it, video. I, I, yeah. And it's, it's, it's sort of me providing an analysis of Back to the Future, which says that it uses nostalgia to enact the perfect capitalist fantasy. Which, mm. if you think of what does Marty do? He's in 1985, which is the heartbeat of the Reagan era. He leaps back in time, skips the harshness of the 1970s, skips civil rights, skips the identity politics of Stonewall and all those stuff, skips Vietnam, mm. and where does he fetch up? The most perfect simulacral fantasy of the 1950s where kids are going to school and the doc is an inventor. And you know, I mean, but, no, I, but I'm, not, I'm not saying that negatively. Hey, I'm like anybody else. I buy the fantasy. I love it, man. Yeah, but the but, only thing I would say, I sort of, I think they do run... They, they do juxtapose the 55 and the 85 by doing things like Red at the at the X Theater. Mm -hmm. yeah. But what I love about it is when Marty comes back, and remember he's bought himself 10 extra minutes because he's in a time yeah. machine. I've got all the time I want, right? Mm -hmm. So he comes back and he goes, it all looks so great. You all look so great. Red. Mm. And, and he, looks, yeah. he looks up at the, at the por pornography theater, mm. the same theater that he was at before. Yeah. And he says, it all looks so great. And for me, that's the message. of you're, you're a product of your time. You belong in your time. Yeah. So when he goes back, even though that looks beautiful and the car comes past and they put fuel in and, yeah. and it's all gleaming, but Marty is in, in a horror movie for him. Yeah. Because he's he's displaced from his own time. No, but I mean, that's what nostalgia does. Nostalgia enables you not to confront trauma. That's mm -hmm. like we could do an incredible Freudian reading of all the incestuous stuff that's going on in this movie. But <laughs> what nostalgia enables you to do is to go, hey, I don't want to confront that stuff. I just want to remember it. It's been beautiful. And Back to the Future enables us to go, hey, 
childhood wasn't it just the most amazing thing we just sat around watching back to the future which of course that wasn't childhood right childhood is also tough mm. so all i'm saying is back to the future enacts that beautiful hollywood fan and that's what hollywood does and then i think that's what's great about number two is that it gives you in one he does make it the way it should be he yeah. sets things right yes in two we get to see what happens if you fail at if that you fail. but you always know he's going to set it right yes of course you by, know by movies like arrival challenge you with okay but what if mm. right Back to the Future, because it's you know there's a very famous theory. It's called the Christ, the the sort of the Judaic Judaic arrow of time. They did a time always goes Whoa. forward, right? I'm using my hand. Yeah, here. like a line. Ta- like a, a it's, time it's line. called. Yeah. So Umberto Eco famous uses <laughs> <laughs> the arrow of time. Right. So the way I look at it is Back to the Future. In fact, Doc gives us a lesson in it in number two. He draws an arrow on the board. And I'll tell you something. You know, now, in Arrival, there are no arrows. You know, benefit right. from watching that scene over and over again. Christopher Nolan. That's how you do a. That's how you do. That's how you do a blackboard scene. I'd love to come into every one of Nolan's films and just explain what the hell's going on. I love that. Actually, you go. That's how you do a blackboard scene. You got to make the blackboard dramatic. Was Nolan? You know, like Michael Caine in Interstellar. He's just sitting there talking. I go, please. Shut up, man. Look, get him into space or something. Last thing I want to say, I'm not going to talk about the ending because that's my mise-en-scene. So I'll get a chance to talk about that in more detail. But back to the characters really quickly. Has there ever been a better bully than Biff Tannen? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And Biff Tannen in three movies playing three different Biffs. It's not just, as you say, the mythologies, it's Biff, Griff, and Buford. (laughs) So the fact is that we have the the villain. And also, what about, the other thing we haven't mentioned in terms of time, Mm. the whole franchise is one big riffing, intertextual set of quotations. Mm-hmm. So it's constantly moving in time. So when Marty goes and confronts Biff in alternate reality to th- uh, 1985, he's watching the final scene in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, yeah. right? Which is going to become the shootout with Buford in number three. So Zemeckis is taking us in time, in the plot, but also in cinematic time. And that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this was nominated... Uh, the script was nominated for yeah, I think Best it was. Screenplay. I think it was. And I don't think it won, but I think it was nominated. So that goes to my point of, yeah, they took a hell of a long time to sell this thing. But when people got on board, they realized that this is something pretty special. I think if you deconstruct this, it's complex, but it's got the characters to back it up. Yeah. It's got that 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 story arc and that emotional arc mm. um, that is, you know, it's to the test of time. Like, I yeah. think I've watched this movie so often, but... I don't tire of watching it because it's just such a wonderful kind of experience, right? But it does link us, you know, it links us against the path of nostalgia. Same like a movie like Goonies does to a lesser yeah. extent. I was also thinking about Goonies when you're talking then because the other thing that Back to the Future had, which the 80s, there were a few examples of it, and we don't really have it as much now, but the idea of the movie that was not going to be like one genre, mm. it was going to defy classification. So Back to the Future is not sci-fi, but it's got sci-fi stuff in it. It's not comedy, it's but not, it's bloody funny. And it's not romantic, but it's, it's not got a hell a of a love story. Film, but it's a love story, yeah. It's, you know, so... so it yeah, was it that gives me a lot of romantic <laughs> feelings, but yeah, yeah, I yeah. know that I, uh, that's not... I don't think of it like love at all. So it's like something coming yeah. together that worked. That, so Ghostbusters was another one, right? Well, Huge in the nostalgia mode that you've been yeah. talking about... Um, uh, Roger Rabbit is my... Uh, yeah, okay, so I that's fantastic. Example. Like, and that's again, like, there's the ideal. She said that's Robert Zemeckis yeah. as well. Yeah. So th- that's Robert Zemeckis at the height of his powers. He he was just... That's from, right, that was Zemeckis. Uh, yeah. Mm. So in fact, Zemeckis is carving out something for himself during this moment of the mid to late 80s because 
that's a late Reagan movie, and it's riffing on Chinatown yeah. and how you take the land from the people and give it to the corporations. And this right? is the point where Steven Spielberg, Kathleen Kennedy, and Frank Marshall. And Frank Marshall yeah. Those three, they, they provided carriage for ideas that they thought were going to be very successful. Yeah. And Zemeckis was the beneficiary of that. Now, Zemeckis, Zemeckis went on to be successful in other things. You know, he's done, he's done well, some other... Forrest Gump, right? did Forrest Gump, right? did Forrest Gump later on. Mm -hmm. But it's this period where I think it's it's just so innovative what they're doing and, and the storytelling. We, everyone goes on about many elements, but the plotting is amazing. Yeah. I broke down the plot once, and it kind of works like an onion. The things that are dilemmas, problems are created, you hit the midpoint... And then the the exact order that they were created is now reversed, and they start to get unraveled. So oh, he fantastic. solves that's his mother's thing. Yeah. He then solves the yeah. time thing. He then solves saving Doc's life thing. And that's the you know the opposite order as it uh, approaches the center, and then it goes backwards from yeah. there. It's and, really cool. And if it's you great. like that kind of nostalgic, whimsical film, if you like Frank Capra, yeah. and whenever cool. I pitch certain, like I always say to people, ah, oh, like you know, to students. So what are the movies that are like touchstones for you? And you'd be surprised what's fallen out and what's stayed in. So, um, you know, like if I go Jaws, they'll know it, but it might not be the thing they yeah. love, right? But you say Back to the Future and you just get this ripple of, ah. oh, yeah. And everybody, Bruce, I've done that year after year. That's that, that was exactly, that was exactly like a line out of Jaws. You yell shark. <laughs> <laughs> but what about Alan Silvestri's oh, yeah. mm -hmm. music? Has there been a movie or trilogy or whatever, but has there ever been, I guess, a score or a piece of music that ties you so strongly to the momentum, to the story, yeah. to the characters? Well, John Williamson owned the 80s for yeah, that yeah. type yeah, of thing. Yeah, but Sylvester is the he's pretty good. closest competitor. Pretty good. <laughs> oh, yeah, nuts. He's only, been, um, he's only won like 10 Academy Oh, yeah, he's, he's won about 25 Oscars. <laughs> um, look. Indiana right. Jones. No, 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 but no, no. all of that, but I get it. suits this material. He does. You know. And he did it again. I don't know if you saw Ready Player One. And the yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Silvestri did the soundtrack for that, but yeah. he also puts in a lot of the Back to the Future yes. scoring. It's kind and of And you strange. can hear that the Back to the Future, some of those motifs, those musical motifs, are picked up again mm. in other films. All right, we must move <laughs> on to Arrival. Take two. Arrival from 2016. French-Canadian director Denis Villeneuve had been making waves with his tense and dramatic Canadian-produced features when in 2013 he broke ground in America with the Oscar-nominated thriller Prisoners. Three years later and he began production on this sci-fi drama Arrival. It's the story of linguist Dr. Leslie Banks, played by Amy Adams, who is asked by the military to help communicate with the aliens who have newly arrived on planet Earth. She is joined by physicist Ian Donnelly, played by Jeremy Renner, and together they negotiate with an antagonistic military, paranoid foreign governments, and the seven-legged heptopods to work out why they have arrived and eventually to try and prevent an interplanetary war. By the end of the film, Amy Adams' character learns that the alien language that she has been learning is the very gift that the aliens have brought with them, and to understand it allows the speaker to experience time in a non-linear fashion. This information then allows the audience to make sense of a series of flashbacks, or rather flash-forwards, that are seen throughout the film. The film presents issues of communication, understanding, perception, family, loss and destiny. The design of the aliens and their language was also extremely well researched and realism was the name of the game for the director, Denis Villeneuve. The movie cost $48 million and took in more than $200 million worldwide, making it quite a success. It was reviewed extremely well and nominated for eight Academy Awards and winning one for Best Sound Mixing. 
Bruce, what's your take on Arrival? First, I didn't even know it was that successful because mm. so I've, I've seen it a few times now and I watched it two days ago and I was struck by how cerebral the movie is. It's complicated. Like you, you don't it, often yeah. get big studio Hollywood stuff going, I'm going to not make any apologies. I'm going to make an intellectual film. Mm-hmm. And especially then if you say, well, I'm going to make an intellectual film about time which is maybe the nerdiest, most intellectual topic that exists in the world, right? Well, I don't know. Last week we did multiverses. <laughs> yeah, so well, that's kind of... But i got to say, this is a nice flow-on from some of the discussions of yeah, last I, week. Yeah, just hang with us, audiences. Yeah, we stay will be with back us. to more mainstream okay, fare. So, I, okay, I want to start... <laughs> <laughs> well, less scientific fare. Yeah. I want to start with a very basic... Okay, we've, this has already come up. We talked about Back to the Future as mapping perfectly the Judaic or Christian arrow of time. So think about how you were how you grew up as a, you know, in your primary school life or high school life. What was your model for thinking about time? It was that time starts somewhere, your life when you're born, and it ends somewhere where you die and it's a line. It goes from the past to the future. What if that was not time at all? And not right? just your life, Bruce, but everything. Every all life events, existence of the universe. All we activity. have we even call it the Big Bang, the start of things. Time goes forward. Where does it head? Well, we don't know. We're still going, right? Let's call that the arrow of time. It goes from, like, you can draw another page, left to right. One of the things that was so impressive for me about Arrival was it was taking into the mainstream a completely different model of time. And I want to say, though, that a lot of my work in film studies, in my research, is to think about alternative models of time. And for a couple of reasons. Movies essentially have time in them, right? They're moving images, which means that we're sitting there experiencing time. Filmmakers realize this really early, that there was this new medium where it could show us weird times. We could cut between time. We could cut to the future. We could cut to the... We can do all this cool stuff. But Bruce, I have to admit, and I've just learned this or got my head around it because of my last watching of Arrival. Yeah. The circle, time, and there's a line she says where it's like there's the circle and there's lots of information. Yes. And it doesn't suggest what order you should take that information in. The the genius of it is the model they give us is a circle. Yeah. It's not a line. And it's just like it's like... So, for instance, your your description of the filmmakers using the arrow of time because you have to watch a film in progressive ways. It's not a spreadsheet. It's not a... um, I don't know. It's not a PDF that's just a circle with some words on it. That could be anything. Could be any- no, and no, no. You don't know which so time is when. Ninety-nine percent of cinema mm. that we watch and that we love, and I'd say ninety-nine point nine percent of Hollywood movies, mainstream movies, Back to the Future being a, a prime example, uh, or one of the most perfect examples is a great film called Predestination by the Spielberg brothers. If anyone's seen mm-hmm. that, yeah, great movie. Um, yeah. Basically, they model the arrow of time. Time goes one from one point and it goes into the future. But in philosophy, we've had many different ideas about time, right? There's nothing that says, if anyone's seen Nolan's Tenet, right, which we, um, you know, Craig Osh and I have discussed extensively. <laughs> Maligned. <laughs> Nolan is very interested in, okay, but could we imagine a different approach to time, right? If entropy changes direction, what if things can go backwards? So there have been all these experiments. One of my all-time favorite films is a short film called La Jete mm. by Chris Marker 
which uh, in English translation is the jetty. And I just said they're uh, still images, Bruce, so it's a very unusual... Oh, the movie is made with stills, mm-hmm. but they form a narrative. And for those of you who don't know that, because it's obviously a more obscure film, but it was loosely adapted by Terry Gilliam for the film 12 Monkeys. Ah. Um, also a so great time program. Now, movie. again, I'm going to say that the model of time in La Jetée maps beautifully onto exactly what Villeneuve has given us with Arrival. So I do want to say at the outset, there are alternatives to the Back to the Future universe. And movies were the site that tried to explore this in experimental ways, and they've always been there. The second thing I want to quickly say is, um, let's do together like a very brief thought experiment, right? So this is very basic. You're talking to me? No, I'm talking to the <laughs> listeners as well. Okay. I'm talking to all of us. Oh, well, I'm going to do the experiment. I do the experiment. So I, I, I say this to students often early on in their university studies with us, right? Um, especially if we're going to try and understand time. So I say to them, okay, so to Herschel and Craig and everyone listening, come up with a really powerful childhood memory. Done. Maybe the first... <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's tears running down Craig's eyes. It's, it's so effective. I just wet my pants. <laughs> he's, he's, he's wet his pants. He's, he's trembling. He's gone into the corner and he's got his thumb in his mouth in a fetal position. You, okay. know, you know what's really sad from my perspective? I was thinking of when I first saw Back to the Future. <laughs> That's how I imagine if you are, sure. Um, so anyway, the point I'm trying to make is, Capture that. Now, how are you going to capture it? You've got an image in your head. Mm. Okay, which arrival is going to use? They're going to use images to capture moments in time, right? Movies do this for us all the time. So here's my question. When you remember this moment, like for both of you, like what are you doing? So most people are going to go, well, I'm, th- I'm, I'm, I'm remembering something that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. What if we just flip that on its head for a second? What if I say to you, no, you're not. You're not doing that at all. What you're doing is, in a sense you are channeling yourself back into the past and you're bringing that past into the present with you in the form of memory. It's a really simple idea, but whenever I say that to students, it's like you can see this light bulb just goes off and they think, wow, that's completely problematized the way we think about time. And just to clarify... So there's no suddenly back to the future, which is I'm going to go back to 1955... In a sense, I'm always connected to 1955. So to some extent, and just clarify if, I'm, if I've got the wrong idea yeah. here, Bruce, but to some extent, are you then saying that we can think of or the arrow of time not as an arrow, but in fact more like storyboards it's where you've got occurrences You're living, which, which okay, can then so be shaped into different places. You can move. Well, and the conclusion we're going to draw here, um, and, and for people who are interested, post, send us an email. I can... You can send you some literature. <laughs> but anyway, the conclusion I'm going to draw you is... Sound like Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, I was just going to say, you're going to send him a Gideon's Bible. In Back to the Future, the basic thing is time is an arrow and we are external to it. I've got to get into a DeLorean to get into time. Mm-hmm. The difference is in films like La Jetée, uh, 12 Monkeys is a good example or not a great example. Um, certainly Arrival is one of the best examples. You don't, you're not external to time. You don't get into something to travel. You are within time itself, and time is within you. Your memories are constantly circulating, bringing time into you, right? Arrival is amazing because it's adapted, I should say, from a short story. The story is called The Story of Your Life, and it's in a collection of stories called The Story of Your Life and Other Stories by a guy called Ted Chiang. C-H-I-A-N-G. For those of you who are interested in this kind of thinking about what exactly is Arrival trying to do, what is Villeneuve trying to push us into in this incredibly intellectual film that really should not be a Hollywood movie but is a Hollywood movie, go and read the short story. It's like 25 pages, and it's 
an incredibly elegant approach to what are alternatives to think about time. I just want to I just want to echo that really quickly because yeah. for our listeners at home, if you haven't read Ted Chiang, um, I mean he's just uh, amazing. So he's got a, he's got other books out as well, other collections. But if you really want to read something that is, if you're into this sort of thing and it's gonna you know, seriously blow your head off, um, read that collection. Because yeah, I, every single I, one of it everything is, is speculative. Everything wow. is so Arrival. Like I'm gonna just say it is a is a philosophical movie. I don't agree that it's just a genre sci-fi movie. It's it's like a work of philosophy made by an incredibly. Don't forget, Villeneuve did a movie called Enemy, which is amazing. He did Prisoners. He did. Um, he turned Blade, Blade Runner, Runner 2049 into one of the deepest philosophical meditations maybe in the last two decades in And Hollywood. he brings aspects of that to Dune, Absolutely. and I can't wait for Dune 2 so, because he's going to continue that. So we're talking that. about a self-professed intellectual filmmaker making a genre movie. So, okay, so what's the big deal here? The, the hook is so interesting. Aliens come. They don't really have a verbal language at all. They just make these weird guttural sounds that nobody can understand, mm. right? Their whole culture... Their whole civilization, their entire sense of being and cognition is based on writing. But they don't write in the Judaic era of time. They write in um, fully formed ideas that are represent like pictographically, right? So they're circles, but then they have all these tentacles, okay? So this is the thing the, you need to get when you're watching Arrival, which is very clear in the book and it's not as clear in the movie. They don't write sequentially, right? So this is what they don't write from left to right, but they also don't write from the moment in the present forward, forward. If I write a sentence, I've got to start here, and time is passing as I'm writing. If you've seen the movie, and I think the movie does a beautiful example, I'm going to talk about this in business scene, but you remember how they write? Mm. Craig, okay, you, you, how do they write? Squirt ink at a window. Okay, and it's instantaneous. Yeah. So they're writing exists in an instant, not in a sequential passage of time, like Back to the Future's arrow of time. So I got really fascinated by the central premise then in the movie. What if, you know like people say when you learn a language, you, the minute you start to dream in it, it's mm. starting to really affect your subjectivity, right? So the concept of the movie is, what if language codes how you think? What if the way you know, we grow up as children, especially in our first sort of three years, from, from about one to three, we know we're getting hardwired with language. There's so much research on this, right? So the movie proposes this. What if I found a bunch of aliens and their language is not sequential and they just spit out ideas and concepts fully formed? Wouldn't they have evolved to be a species that perceives all things at the same time? right, through their writing. And what if you found a scientist on Earth who is an amazing linguist who can actually learn their language? Wouldn't that recode her own cognition? And this is the... Now, whether you buy that or not, most cognitive thinkers, most scientists, people like Steve Pinker, will say this idea is not real. It doesn't make sense. You can't change your language and therefore recode the passage of time. But it doesn't matter. It's an interesting thought experiment in the movie. What happens if you – I'm looking at Craig here. Yeah. What happens if you can Good. perceive time not in a linear way, but you just know what's going to happen seven years from your life and you exist 
at all times. Well, that's how I that perceive moment. everything backwards from now. Yes. Like so I can why can't see you every... receive a forward? Well, I know. It, it annoys me. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, this is the thing. This is the gift they give us. What if our perception of the past, which, as I, I tried to demonstrate in the thought experiment, when we think the past is a linear thing, mm. it's totally flawed. And that's Chang. a ridiculous model. That's not the, the past is an amorphous of ideas and images. Why isn't the future simply that as well? Well, Arrival says it can be. What if it was? How would we live? Here's a quiz question for our, our listeners. What's the only movie that's done this? Other than La Jete, I think, which gets it as elegantly, if not more elegantly than Arrival. The only other movie that for me gets that idea and shows it to us using montage is um, 2001 in the final sequence in the sort of Regency bedroom where he's constantly... He, he is the future. He is well, the past. Well, 2001, I think, things. takes it even like a step further. But ironically, um, there's, a, there's, there's an Italian physicist named Carlo Rovelli. And he, he's... Starting uh, physics stuff again, I'm sure. He's, yeah, he's, I was just he, about to make a, an apology to the audience. <laughs> Hang in there. He's What's very... This? Look, he's gotten a lot of traction with this idea that there is no concept of time but everything is space. And our perception of time is something that's subjective to our species or to the way we've evolved. Mm. Now, that goes to the arrival piece. Yeah. So now our listeners might be sitting there and say, oh, come on, this is getting a little bit ridiculous now because the fact is... <laughs> no, no, no. You, it's not getting... Uh, the reason it's yeah, not getting... Yeah, listeners, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it's not getting ridiculous because that's what this movie is. I don't know how the hell it made $200 million. Mm. Amy Adams is absolutely amazing. She's the special good. effects are just gorgeous. No, but I, what I'm trying I to say I don't know why it made $200 million, but this is a philosophical movie about time and it is one of the most complex ones we've ever had I just want to read something very quickly <laughs> alright alright this is the opening paragraph it's only short of uh, the short story so listen to how genius this is because the one criticism I have of the movie is going to be revealed by why I think the the short story is philosophically even more interesting and really right? necessary if you've seen the movie yeah. and you haven't read the story go back to the story yeah. then. the opening your father is about to ask me the question this is the most important moment in our lives, and I want to pay attention to note every detail. Your dad and I have just come back from an evening out, dinner and a show, it's after midnight. We came out onto the patio to look at the full moon. Then I told your dad I wanted to dance, so he humors me, and now we're slow dancing. All I want to draw your attention to then is that passage is so weird because it constantly slips from present tense to past tense to present tense to past tense. And this is Dr. Leslie Banks, how she writes. She's writing constantly in terms of time flowing. Because there is no tense. There's no, pa right. there's no so past she, tense. In this short story, she writes she's in the, the first she, person, but her tense is she's constantly, all, over yeah, all over the place. Right. Now, the first time I read, because the first time I started reading it when I didn't know what it was about, I just thought... What the hell's going on in this? Like, why is this guy <laughs> writing so funny? Mm. But then you realize what he's trying to capture is what would a mind, like what would thinking be like if you were not trapped in time and thinking from past to present, but you were in, in fact in all of time simultaneously, like the star child in 2001. And I think what he does so beautifully is he uses literary form to do it. Villeneuve does montage, film form, but it's not, look, you know when Amy Ad Adams gets those flashes of her, of, of her child in mm -hmm. the future and, it's, and, and, and her jaw sort of drops like she's, she's shocked? Mm. That doesn't make any sense. No, but see, I don't she should have an instantaneous awareness. No, but I, yeah, I guess. But I don't see her shock as realization. I see it as like, like a physical dislocation of her brain well, because she's yeah. picking up a new mm. thing. 
And it's because I think, it's, I think it's because it's a film, right? And so no, but that's what I'm saying. It's, know, it's not literary film. Yeah, it's, because the, the, there's the slow re- resolve of the Chinese president yeah. or minister talking to her, slowly revealing, cutting away back to her on the phone. It's yes. like it's a it's building tension to make you. I mean, but and, and that's where the movie has to make a few compromises. Yes. Or you know, you, what are you going to have? We can't just have a completely brainiac type. You know, think about well, time. No, it'd be like watching uh, Czechoslovakian cinema from the 60s. <laughs> or something. Like, it'd be like watching, it'd be watching, be like like watching conceptual cinema of yeah, the yeah, cinema. Yeah, yeah. Primer. We are watching the movie Primer. That is, that's the hardest thing. Have you guys Listen seen um, Michael Snow's Wavelength? No. no. I, I always make the students watch it. It's a 45-minute art house movie, and all it is is a camera slow zooms into a wall where there's a photograph and you can't tell what's on it. it takes 45 minutes and at the same time there's a note on the soundtrack mm. and it's just like okay. for 45 minutes why do you do that to your students it's one of the most important works of art ever in the 20th century and they're all like they stay no, in no, the no, class no no they hate me. no they well, hate oh, you. whenever I come because I don't watch it with them I've do seen they, it yeah, at least right. five times do they watch it on YouTube oh, and put you it five times the room, speed <laughs> yeah, yeah that would be so funny you watch it at five times yeah. speed right and the whole point of that movie is it's about time it's about duration mm. it's not a 45 so. minute movie it's a nine minute movie <laughs> it's and it's much more high pitched when you're speeding through uh, it it's so funny because whenever, whenever I watch it uh, whenever I put it on at the end of it people just applaud just because it's over <laughs> Not, not because it was good, because I'm so happy You're the torturing students. All right, I want to say about this movie, it reminds me a lot of The Day the Earth Stood Still. The, yeah. The, the, the 50s I watched it about three yeah. weeks ago. Yeah, so yeah. Like that, it's like that, plus you added this language element and time element. Yeah. But otherwise, it's this, a very similar plot. Yes. You know? Um, for those people that don't know, Herschel, what happens in that? An alien Daily arrives, okay, alien rocks arrives. up in a park. Um, it's actually <laughs> quite um, sort of referential nostalgic piece in itself because mm. you've got... Characters at the time, this is in the mutually assured destruction phase of nuclear weapons and everything. Everyone's worried that we're going to blow ourselves up. Mm. And um, Alien arrives to say that you can't do this, sets an example, saying that the Earth has to learn from its mistakes. Um, you've got the the, the, the the scientist with the wild hair. That's the Einstein figure working in New York. Um, and But the, the best thing is that, that is it Klepto, 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 the, the Klatu, giant robot, Klatu. Klatu comes and stands outside, and it's just a strong robot that doesn't speak like an alien yeah. type thing and that's what freaks everybody out it's a great yeah. movie it's a it's a it's a great movie about you know paranoia as well um all of those ideas that were dominating things um but i, I mean i like the idea that it's the about an alien coming to advise us to provide mm. guidance yeah so no different like you know it's such a trope because in 2001 of course the monoliths guide us into a point of first contact with the aliens and our own evolution. What's well, weird to think of the monoliths of and, then, and then the ships in this. Yeah. Very similar. Oh, did you, you know. feel that as well? Because yeah, that's yeah, what that. I was going to. But that's also what reminded me of the giant yeah. klepto. Yeah, in, um, clearly, Arrival is pointing back to 2001. Yeah. But I think it's right. pointing back to a lot of things. Yeah. I think this is. It's, it's one of my favorite science fiction movies. Well, I guess. Look, I do love Dune and I love Blade Runner 2049, but I love everything. Pretty much everything Dennis Villeneuve yeah. does, I love it. I mean, he's a really serious but filmmaker. And I, right. and I should say as well, um, about a month ago, I've, I read that he's now tied to an adaptation of Arthur C. Clarke's Rendezvous with Rama, which people have been talking about making for 50 years. But, uh, you know, this is going to be a very wow. difficult thing to mm. make. But that book really got me thinking when I was in sort of middle high school, early high school. Um, so I can't wait to see what Dennis Villeneuve is going to mm. do with that. Um, I mean... I, I think he's so he's such a cool filmmaker. It's so good to have like 
like full-on philosophical filmmakers who pop up. Like he's the obverse of a Christopher Nolan, mm. right? And I'm not saying Nolan's not an interesting filmmaker, but you see the the the, the familiar patterns in Nolan. Whereas when you watch Villeneuve, it's like you're surprised, right? He wants to take on the strange ideas. Um, just in conclusion, I want to say that, like, I know that some of our discussion has been a bit intricate about philosophies of time there's a wonderful book called out of time by a guy called todd mcgowan right? it's not you lewis is it? No, <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> um and mcgowan who's a film theorist uh he he's got this great book where he does an analysis of like 10 movies and his big claim is, is that the 90s fundamentally was the decade when a lot of hollywood and indie indie movies try to come to terms with what time could be right and he even says the 20th century was the century in which as as a culture, we, we try to understand time. And I think Arrival is one of the most sophisticated entries in that. So it's not like you can turn off from what it's offering. That's what the movie is. It's asking so much. And it's just fantastic that the movie made a hell of a lot of money. It's been discussed. You know, I teach it in university. People have written about it. Let's move on to our mise en scène. Yes. Mise en scène. Now it's time for our mise en scène, where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, it's Herschel. What have you chosen for us from Back to the Future? The ending of Back to the Future is 25 minutes of movie magic. <laughs> I've watched this movie a lot. And Wait, where are you calling the ending? Because yeah, okay. okay. Mise en scène is I supposed to be like an analysis. I, know, I don't want... 25 minutes, Herschel, that's like a quarter no, no, of the movie. I, yeah, thanks for Here's the problem. <laughs> here's the issue, this though. This guy's in the wrong time. He's <laughs> all over the place. You can't look at Back to the Future as... A single shot. I mean, you could, I could pick a shot here and there, but like, it's like the mise en scene thing the, we're doing. It's the yeah. story. It's the story that drives. Back <laughs> like to the, the definition of mise en scene. Like it's, what we all agreed we'd do for this. It's the story that drives back to the future. Okay. So that's all, okay. What I'm doing is, from the time Marty, it's that final night where Marty's got to go home. At ten o four. Okay. The lightning's going to strike. It's going to hit the clock tower. We, yeah. Okay. So what I, I want to say, how Robert Zemeckis frames the entire move. We're we basically running three scenes. You've got Marty at the dance. You've got the doc putting everything together. And then the final thing will be the two of them coming together to solve the problem. Because I don't want to go into the, into the ending, no, ending where the no. doc wakes up and that. But consider that sequence. They use a clock in the DeLorean to demonstrate to you that every second counts in this. Yep. So they set you up like you, uh, and I referenced this earlier, but it's like you're watching an episode of 24. Everything counts. So when. Can, can I just say, I just want to, just before you go, I just want to say, think about how powerful that arrow of time is, right? It's so powerful that they've got to keep showing you the clock in mm. terms of where you're up to. So even though we're cutting, we're cutting in real time. We have to be, otherwise, time means nothing in this sequence, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's perfect. So. I'm picking up from after Johnny Be Good and that. I'm picking it up from when the doc looks up and he says the storm. Okay, <laughs> that's where I pick it up from. <laughs> Marty leaves. He's running across. Um, he arrives. The doc is, you know, he looks at his watch. He goes, "Where is he?" Yeah. And and then the Sylvester music and, yeah. and you know, it's it's just your heart is racing. Yes, it's so tying. Good. It's tying in the knot tighter and tighter yeah. because. We know exactly at 10.04, lightning strikes. And they're the only people in the world that know that lightning strikes a thing at 10.04 and you've got to be in place. From here on, Marty arrives. He does a cool jump across the car, slides yes. across the car, gets in. The alarm goes off. The car cuts out. See, as you talk, I can't stop smiling because I can see It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. The car cuts out. You can't get And Marty's going, no, don't do this to me. And then 
in, in a bit of a comedic moment. He slams his head against the steering wheel and the car <laughs> turns on. And then he floors it, right? Now, for those of you more scientifically minded, you might quibble that. Doesn't that throw you out even by a fraction? Therefore, you're going to miss the yeah. lightning hitting. Yes. It does. All of that's true. No, no, but it's the whimsy. It's the whimsy. No, that I know. undercuts that. Like, this is not... It's scientific not realism. It's not a rival. Yeah, you couldn't do it in a rival because that would look ridiculous. But in Back to the Future, you have to have it. So right? I want the audience to zoom in on a sequence or like this particular shot. In the distance, you've got the DeLorean with its lights on. You can see it in the distance. And the dock is <laughs> setting up at his end. Then something astonishing happens. Lightning, a, a prior lightning strike strikes the tree. The branch falls. And it unplugs the cable <laughs> from the top of the tower. Um, Marty's already driving. Yeah. The dock has to go. He, <laughs> he goes up onto the top. Yeah, but before, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is before he does that, when he sees when the he way, screams. he goes, like that. And it's so <laughs> funny, right? His facial... Because Christopher Lloyd, he's handing it up as far as yeah. he can, right? And there's a beautiful moment. So Lloyd's up there. He's walking on the ledge. He's holding onto the gargoyle. Um, the, 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 the platform, away. the ledge yeah. gives way. He's got this thing. Um, it looks lost. The Sylvester music, it's picking yeah. up. We've got Marty in the distance coming. The, it goes to 10.03. The, the huge hand moves across 10.03. Yeah. That's 60 seconds. So it's so clever that the audience at every point is in the time sequence. Yeah. Well, you have to be, They right? know yeah. what the danger is. Um, and I also like how we go from small clocks to bigger clocks to, to the big clock. Exactly. You know? yeah. When he plugs it back in, he undoes the plug at the bottom. And then <laughs> you think all is lost. And there's a wonderful close-up on Christopher Lloyd when just with a degree of poise and measure, he stops, realizes what he has to do. He throws a rope around the hand, repels down as Marty's coming. And then there's a beautiful cut to the car. And Michael J. Fox, who's, a, I think, a really good actor, he, he looks up and he goes, Doc. Yeah. Because we but know... But he's going like, Doc. Yeah, it, we know it's the gravity like, of the moment. Yeah. As he comes across, the car hits the wire. <laughs> As the lightning strikes, Christopher Lloyd's arms come together, closes the circuit. He gets blown <laughs> 10 meters backward. <laughs> and the car goes into the I future. mean, it's only like a million volts just went through his body. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> 1.21 gigawatts yeah, 1.21 of electricity yeah. just went through the dog's body and you know there's like sonic booms where it goes bang 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 yeah. and the yeah. car's gone and when the dog gets up and he starts dancing uh, in the street so beautiful. it's so beautiful so I'm going to stop the sequence there but the audience knows that when when Marty gets to the future back to 1985 well uh, it's interesting you stop it just at the point where I'm I'm always interested I, as a kid yeah. the shot of him dancing he looks up at the clock you cut to the clock and you pull down from the clock with the camera cranes down yeah. to see the car arrive. And in that shot, you've realized you've jumped 30 you've ju years yeah. that, via exactly. the device of a clock. And that's wonderful, yeah. isn't it? I mean, so, so that knowingness about you are traveling, like this is a time machine. And, yeah. you know, I also like the gesture of like, I'm going to travel you through time as a spectator mm. in this one shot, which is really lovely. I, I What I, mean, I take I, away from your analysis, which I think is spot on, is... How you build suspense. This is such a Hitchcock thing. You build yeah. suspense knowing where you are in space and knowing where you are in time. I, I love that. It's Spielberg and it's Hitchcock. It's never yeah. been done better. No, that's excellent. I, yeah. I'm going to, you know, I love that sequence. I, I want to watch it again just because I can see all of that in my head. It's just one of the great, great sequences ever. All right. Mise en scène. Bruce, time for your mise en scène. Yeah, thank you. So I want to contrast the, how perfectly you describe 
what I'm going to call parallel montage in movie making, which is literally I'm going to cut from there to there to there, up to the top, to Christopher Lloyd, back to Marty, back to Christopher Lloyd, back across the street. All of that's happening in sync, like in time. And that's just called parallel montage, right? Um, and then in space, it gives us enough wide shots. You know, this is my criticism of some of the Michael Bay sort of chaos cinema, which is mm. if I don't know where I am, and I don't know when I am. I can't engage. And with that's this. why I yeah, reference right. I don't the Marty. Care. Yeah, I don't give a stuff. That's why I, I don't know what's going on. The headlights on the DeLorean yes. coming on, but you've got Christopher Lloyd in frame as well. Yep. So we understand. We understand the sequence, yep. the physical sequence of it. I think good action, good drama has got to have a kind of spatial and temporal, um, like um, you know, like like harmony to it. Or I don't know what I'm doing watching it. I, I can't relate to anything. So I, the arrow of time parallel montage is, you know, cut within an inch of its life. It's so perfect. And you described actually how it just forms like a perfect closure. You just feel so like that works, right? The most impressive scene for me in Arrival was the first time they go into the spaceship. Now, I don't know if you remember mm. this. And oh, if it's viewers haven't seen it in a while, go back, right? Because... I'm constantly amazed in Arrival. Okay, we've talked about this as a philosophical investigation of time, but Villeneuve is really interesting in trying to show you a world that's like not this perfect spatial and temporal structure. So they go into the um, the uh, the entry door to the spaceship and they walk, you know, they, they climb up because there's gravity. Mm. And do you remember when the one guy, the one army person, he takes this, like, this, this yellow rod type thing and he throws it up? Yeah. And it goes up as if you would throw a tennis ball up in the air, but at a certain point, it just sits against the side wall. Mm. Yeah, like because it lands, no on, the, it lands, lands on, on the side wall. Yeah. Right? Lands on a different gravity. And so, what was vertical is now horizontal. Yeah, and so um, the physicist, what's his name? The guy who plays the physicist, Ian Jeremy, Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner. Now I've got to say, he's probably my weakest link in the film. I don't, I didn't feel he was emotive enough. Yeah, I like him because I thought things. Amy Adams was just beyond extraordinary. I like him in some things, but he's not my favorite actor. Yeah, like, I don't love him, and I'm not. He's great in that hustle movie, American Hustle. I thought he was very Mm. good in that. Anyway, and Jeremy Renner says, yeah, like I just saw that, you know, as if to make a gag of we've just broken the physics of space Mm -hmm. in that one shot. And then as they move forward, they move into the space that has no, um, you know, clarity around what is up, what is down, what is left, what is right. And the reason I chose this is insane. It's a spatial version of what the movie's gonna do with time, you know, as it moves along. So as she learns the language of the aliens, her engagement with time is gonna be precisely that engagement with space. There's no start, there's no finish, there's no perfect coordinates where everything lives by. You know, you are the star child in 2001. You are everywhere at all times, um, and you are every when at all times. And there's no, right? there's no discussion or no attempt to answer questions you might have like, well, where do the aliens materialize from? Like, that's yep. not a genuine question no. because no. the like, space and it's time. It's interesting. Are I didn't concepts. care either. At no point did I no, was no, no, like, I, worried about. Neither that. was yeah, I. Yeah. I just thought this is such an elegant idea. I'm not going to ask him to explain everything in an idea that we even philosophically are struggling to wrestle with. Because right? remember, at one point, Amy Adams says, like, "Where did they come?" And he goes, "They just arrived." Yeah. But anyway, so that's my mission saying. Watch the spatial, total stripping away of your orientation. And I was watching it going. Whoa, I'm feeling a bit weirdly vertiginous. You know, like, there's, only, yeah. there's, a, there's sort of one uh, time I've gotten that in a movie before, and this is going to take both of you back. Do you remember the three of us with your brother, Todd, um, mm-hmm. Craig, your, Todd Anderson, 
we went to watch Contact. Robert Zemeckis oh, yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. So I want to reference Robert Zemeckis, Zemeckis as the director. Well. I totally forgot Contact. That's a really important touchstone you, year. Well, do you remember when they build the machine? Yeah. And yeah. we were sitting there going, it feels like I'm actually involved in this. I know. This yeah. is, this and is then like, when you see the machine for the first time, mm. I mean, I think Contact has all sorts of problems, right? But at that moment, What's that is one of cinema's... It's fascinating. It's great. And that is one of cinema's beautiful images. I oh, think. what about the mirror shot as well, which also I know the mirror. I mean, the only thing the mirror shot is, like, I find some of that like a bit ostentatious. Like, hey, look how cool I am. Uh, well, now, now that we say what... <laughs> I guess you had a problem with the feather and Forrest Gump then. Oh, don't get me started <laughs> on the feather and the box of chocolates. Or the plastic oh. bag in American Beauty then. <laughs> No, but don't this forget, guy's a hater. If, if, you, if you don't make the alien become Jodie Foster's father, that movie goes a lot oh, further than it, if that you it ended up can, going. If, if you match, yeah, that, that's where it if you match Kubrick's vision yeah. and the genius philosophical of that end scene with Contact, and Contact had done something like not to turn us into little kids at the end, yeah. then I would go, whoa. And, and also, it, Matthew McConaughey constantly talking about how you know he's a priest, yeah, but he's the irrationalist. I mean, firstly, don't put Matthew McConaughey wanna, in so many movies. I don't want to. I don't want to take up too much time on content, but I want to say um, uh, one more thing. Imagine in two thousand and one, if like Dave Bowman had met his father. That was the way yeah. he got explained to him. You just sit there and go on. That's a travesty. That's yeah. what happened with Contact. Yeah. That movie actually is a hell of a lot better I'll than people you, say it is. Yes. My, my mum and dad, Lynn and Rob Anderson, <laughs> nineteen seventy one. They were married. They, for their honeymoon, went on the Indian Pacific, which goes from Sydney to Perth. And yeah, this was wow. only like one year old at this time. And my dad was fascinated with trains. Yes. Got to Perth. They got out. They had a week in Perth hanging out. They went and saw 2001 in cinema. Oh, wow. On their honeymoon. <laughs> and my mum to this day. Was that your mum or your dad? I think it was just a popular film. Must okay. have been still in cinemas. You know how yeah, back yeah. in those days things were always in I'm cinema. I'm trying to like, picture Either your mum or your dad watching that movie. It, I, it wouldn't have leapt out of me thinking of your dad or your mum watching 2001. I, my dad, he refers to it, he will say it with pride. Like, yeah. I saw I that. I saw 2001. He, not, yeah. not, even just that it was a spectacle, not so much that it was like an important film, yeah. but he knows that it was like a big film at the time to see. And mum just went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's her, I, I just remember her responses are mostly, oh, like frustration <laughs> at whatever happens at the end anyway. Yes. So I think they would probably prefer the father of the astronaut to sit down and explain okay. what the well, hell's okay, happened. But this is, a I lot know of people would probably prefer that, yes. right? Like a lot of people go, "What the? I hate that movie because what's that in scene? I don't know what's going on." <laughs> I have I have a question for both of you now. Yeah. All right. right, this is bringing it back to that oh, man, Judo Christian time. Judeo Christian, yeah. Arrow of time. Arrow, arrow, arrow of time. time. Yeah. Not Umberto Echo, no. Yeah. It's it's. Well, Umberto Jason. Echo, he talks about this oh, in a in a, okay. in a in a a volume called The Platypus. <laughs> Okay. Something on the platypus. Nerd alert. <laughs> All right. So bringing it back to that, where it's about characters now, and this is filmmaking. Mm. We're talking about films. Characters make choices about their future in both films or mm. a, about destiny and about the stuff they make. Marty desperately wants to r set things right to go back to who he is, but along the way has to solve but accidentally makes things better for himself. Amy Adams's character which it, right, right at the end of Arrival, when you realise what the trick the film's been playing on you is, and you go, oh, hang on, she now has to choose whether or not to can go through... With, with her life. With her life, or at least to say to Jeremy, yep. let's have a baby yes. and get it on so that I can have a baby that's yes. going to die in front of me. Like, that's horrible, right? And like, the question is, if you know 
Mm. Remember, she says, would you change it? That's because right. she's understanding that she now knows. Yeah. And her answer is, no, you embrace it. You but it's, it's very life. broad, though. So this is one of the big philosophical conundrums for any time philosophy. But it's, it's, if it's you very know broad, the Bruce. future, can you change it? Well, if you change it, then how could you have known it in the first place? And everything that you're right? saying in that also has a linearity. But remember, our knowledge is 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 knowledge that we've picked up, yeah. which which I guess presupposes a kind of process, right? Mm -hmm. A time process. Her knowledge is like perfect. So not only doesn't she she knows that the, the child is going to be ill, and should I do this? But she knows everything that follows from that, including what will happen, you know, from everything that has happened previously. But, and, and not on that, she not only knows it because we we're still talking in the language of linearity. You we're saying she knows. It's not just that she knows it. She has experienced. She's it also all. lived it. Well, she's I think she's had all. to accept it, right? Yeah. Because that's the thing. If you She's a prisoner to the linear arrow, right? Yep. Because now she must go through with it. Or she she chooses to, but I think she's now knowing what's ahead. I find it horrible to think the, the worst parts for me are that Jeremy Renner left her. Yeah. Like when he said, I mean, that's says, tough, huh? For us as an audience, it's yeah. tough. Oh, yeah, and then the kid says, what is it? Yeah. What what did he find out? Yes. And then she won't say. And yes. I'm like, oh. My only question that I don't understand on, in the man. movie at all, which I don't think is... In the book, in the story, what the hell did she tell Jeremy Renner for? Why'd she tell him this? Well, obviously he's he's wise to the fact that she sort of experiences everything differently now. Yeah, but why would you say? I'm, I presume what she says is our daughter will is going okay. to catch a radi because well, she says it's about a radiation. In my linear what? arrow brain, I'd yeah. say she knew she had to tell him at yeah. some point, and that's how he would react. But she yeah, but just what went does that facilitate? Because that's never. I don't know. For us. Why did she go through with the birth? But What's that, going but, on? But see, that, that's, that's why these questions don't work. <laughs> yeah. Because we're talking about no, it like, she's living it all simultaneously. She's already lived it. Mm. And in fact, yeah. even to say that to live, she's already lived it is incorrect. Yeah. Well, that's there is why, no process of living. But that's why the short it, story works, because linguistically you can play with tenses. Yes. In a movie, you can't. All right, Marty gets to make a similar decision in the next film where he goes, what if I had the yes. lottery book? What if I knew yeah, the yeah, outcomes yeah. and I could make much better for my life? I love that that plays out yep. in further films, you know, and intertextual films. The yes. best thing about two is how much it, works with one. Oh, what like about the final sequence? So your, your third act is then re-kind of modelled and expanded well, in two because the third act becomes like a three-plus act. Now. I was and it's just genius. In my notes, I've written, when you think about two and three and the way it riffs on the ending of one, yeah. you've kind of got, because it's linking us not only to nostalgia of 1955, but the nostalgia we feel for the original movie mm. from movies two and three. So you've kind of got like a nostalgia within a nostalgia yep. situation. And even it's Jameson, who was writing that stuff on the nostalgia mode, mm. I don't think fully appreciates that, right, in his work. And I've read his work really carefully because he's not a fan like the three of us. All right. I'm going to say, Herschel, I know your favorite film out of these two. Back no, yes, when I saw Arrival, I saw Arrival before Bruce. Yeah. I said to him, it's one of the best science Yeah, I remember Herschel saying to me, yeah. you've got to go check this out. This oh, is I serious. got to see it in Beverly Hills. That, oh, was over in America cool. at the time. It was so exciting. It leveled yeah, me. Yeah. When I finished watching it, when I realized when she says, when she realizes she knows his mobile number, mm. but not only does she know his number. I've got to say, that was the only weak part of it. I but, didn't want that crap. No, I love that. But, yeah. but I, mean, then, I know you like it crap. I didn't know, like that stuff. She knows the mobile number, but she also knows of the result of the conversation. I thought mm. that was very clever. Yeah, but the minute he has to tell her what his wife yeah. said on a deathbed uh, so that she apparently in the past can use this to mm -hmm. avert the war then you're essentially in the christian era of time 
Then, then you're uh, yeah. out. But that's because that the dilemma of making a film in, a, I, in that th- this time is the point I'm making. error. That's right? why, for all our listeners, read the short story oh, right. and watch the movie. But as okay, much as I wait. love Arrival, as much yeah. as I think it's, yeah. it's one of the best achievements by a Hollywood filmmaker that really grapples with complexity and intellectual mm. exercise, Back to the Future is the best movie of all okay. time. Okay. <laughs> Bruce, <laughs> Bruce, for you? Yeah. The two of them? Yeah, Back to the Future. I just got to go with it. Back to the Future is really... My uh, childhood. It's Back everything. to the Future is a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. Like, it's so important. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have for Marty McFly and the Heptapods episode. Can I draw something that if people are interested... Uh, I recently published a, a chapter on some of the themes we've discussed today on the Richard Linklater film Boyhood. Ah, wow. So, and it's in a collection on Richard Linklater's films edited by Kim Wilkins. And, Is um, this a book or a, It's online? a book. So yeah. I've got a, a chapter in this book. But if you're interested in like the way that cinema has tried to explore being feeling different about time, Boyhood, I think, is one of the amazing experiments. And if you're interested, check out my chapter in it. Um, you know, okay, uh, so let's yeah. put that on the Instagram. Let's let's put an ad for that book. Okay. Like, you okay. know, put a, I'll a send post a link. To that. I'll send a yeah, link. Send the link yeah. And then put the post and maybe to the, the Back to the, the Future uh, video essay. Yeah, let's do check that. Yeah, that let's use all those resources. And Reaganite cinema. Absolutely. Yeah, so go to the Instagram, Film versus Film podcast yep. on Instagram. Yeah. And uh, don't forget to review and rate us because that really helps other people find our podcast. And please tell us. And it's good for us as well. We want to hear what people think of us, right? If you hate it, Get the That's feedback fine. from people. Especially, we've been, we started the season with some quite complex conversations. Like, is that working for you? Does it get too caught up in complexity? I, also, or, I told know? her, sure. I think I might have told you as mm. well. One of my PhD students I was talking to the other day, um, and she said to me that she so loves the podcast. And she said, the thing about it is you can't, like, go make yourself a cup of tea, like she said, like you would in another podcast. <laughs> she goes, there's so much content. And I just have to, like, really Pen and paper at the ready. <laughs> Mm. And then she and her sister is also like very smart. Might be decided PhD very soon. She goes to me. Uh, my sister was up till three in the morning. She couldn't stop listening. Well, I'm sorry, we've done that to you. How Stay in that? school. Thanks, Keep off Chen the quality material. Well, you want to do a I, shout I out know to that Chen Li is listening. She she follows our podcast. Hey, Chen Li. Chen Li is my wonderful PhD student. Ah, uh, so. nice. What's her? Can you talk about what her research is on? Yeah, yeah. She's looking at um, sort of the diaspora. Uh, which is like a cultural, like people who live on the periphery in East Asian cinema. And she's looking at the way uh, filmmakers like Wong Kar Wai, who did uh, mm-hmm. The Grandmaster in The Move for Love, um, and other Asian filmmakers were exploring new kinds of identity in, in cinema, like 90s and 2000s. Fantastic topic. I'm, I'm really excited. Well, I think it's going it. to be a cool book in the next few years. Well, we'll look forward to it, and we'll give you a shout-out when it comes out. Yeah, when you've, of yeah. course. On the next episode of Film vs. Film, two very different thrillers that have altered the way filmmakers will present horror for the rest of time, violence and the demented world of serial killers. Both films were released in 1960, and one is the criminally underseen British film Peeping Tom, and the other is Alfred Hitchcock's biggest box office success, Psycho. Well, I can't, can't wait that for that. Is that is a hot episode. I've been Craig Anderson. I've been Bruce Isaacs. I've been Herschel Isaacs. Join us next time for Film vs. Film. Take two. Film vs. Film. Film. Film.